Chapter 11 of The Mirror of the Sea by Joseph Conrad This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. The Mirror of the Sea, Chapter 11 In Captivity A ship in dock, surrounded by quays and the walls of warehouses, has the appearance of a prisoner meditating upon freedom in the sadness of a free spirit put under restraint. Chain cables and stout ropes keep her bound to stone posts at the edge of a paved shore, and a berthing master with brass buttons on his coat walks about like a weather-beaten and ruddy jailer, casting jealous, watchful glances upon the moorings that fetter a ship lying passive and still and safe, as if lost in deep regrets of her days of liberty and danger on the sea. The swarm of renegades, dockmasters, berthing masters, gatemen and such like, appear to nurse an immense distrust of the captive ship's resignation. There never seem chains and ropes enough to satisfy their minds concerned with the safe binding of free ships to the strong, muddy, enslaved earth. "'You'd better put another bite of a horse or a stern, Mr. Mate,' is the usual phrase in their mouths. I brand them for renegades because most of them have been sailors in their time. As if the infirmities of old age, the grey hair, the wrinkles at the corners of the eyes and the knotted veins of the hands were the symptoms of moral poison, they prowl about the quays with an underhand air of gloating over the broken spirit of noble captives. They want more fenders, more breasting ropes. They want more springs, more shackles, more fetters. They want to make ships with volatile souls as motionless as square blocks of stone. They stand on the mud of pavements, these degraded sea dogs, with long lines of railway trucks clanking their couplings behind their backs, and run malevolent glances over your ship from headgear to taffrail, only wishing to tyrannise over the poor creature under the hypocritical cloak of benevolence and care. Here and there, cargo cranes, looking like instruments of torture for ships, swing cruel hooks at the end of long chains. Gangs of dock labourers swarm with muddy feet over the gangways. It is a moving sight, this, of so many men of the earth, earthy, who never cared anything for a ship, trampling, unconcerned, brutal and hobnailed upon her helpless body. Fortunately, nothing can deface the beauty of a ship. That sense of a dungeon, that sense of a horrible and degrading misfortune overtaking a creature fair to see and safe to trust, attaches only to ships moored in the docks of great European ports. You feel that they are dishonestly locked up, to be hunted about from wharf to wharf on a dark, greasy square pool of black water as a brutal reward at the end of a faithful voyage. A ship anchored in an open roadstead, with cargo lighters alongside and her own tackle swinging the burden over the rail, is accomplishing in freedom a function of her life. There is no restraint. There is space, clear water around her, and a clear sky above her mastheads, with a landscape of green hills and charming bays opening around her anchorage. She is not abandoned by her own men to the tender mercies of shore people. She still shelters and is looked after by her own little devoted band, and you feel that presently she will glide between the headlands and disappear. It is only at home, in dock, that she lies abandoned, shut off from freedom by all the artifices of men that think of quick dispatch and profitable freights. 
It is only then that the odious rectangular shadows of walls and roofs fall upon her decks with showers of soot. To a man who has never seen the extraordinary nobility, strength and grace that the devoted generations of shipbuilders have evolved from some pure nooks of their simple souls, the sight that could be seen five and twenty years ago of a large fleet of clippers moored along the north side of the New South Dock was an inspiring spectacle. Then there was a quarter of a mile of them, from the iron dockyard gates guarded by policemen, in a long forest-like perspective of masts moored two and two to many stout wooden jetties. Their spars dwarfed with their loftiness the corrugated iron sheds, their jabooms extended far over the shore, their white and gold figureheads, almost dazzling in their purity, overhung the straight long quay above the mud and dirt of the wharfside, with the busy figures of groups and single men moving to and fro, restless and grimy under their soaring immobility. At tide-time you would see one of the loaded ships with batten-down hatches drop out of the ranks and float in the clear space of the dock, held by lines dark and slender, like the first threads of a spider's web, extending from her bows and her quarters to the mooring-posts on shore. There, graceful and still, like a bird ready to spread its wings, she waited, till, at the opening of the gates, a tug or two would hurry in noisily, hovering around her with an air of fuss and solicitude, and take her out into the river, tending, shepherding her through open bridges, through dam-like gates, between the flat pier-heads, with a bit of green lawn surrounded by gravel, and a white signal-mast with yard and gaff, flying a couple of dingy blue, red or white flags. This New South Dock, it was its official name, round which my earlier professional memories are centred, belongs to the group of West India docks, together with two smaller and much older basins called Import and Export, respectively, both with the greatness of their trade departed from them already. Picturesque and clean as docks go, these twin basins spread, side by side, the dark lustre of their glassy water, sparely peopled by a few ships laid up on buoys or tucked far away from each other at the end of sheds in the corners of empty quays, where they seem to slumber quietly remote, untouched by the bustle of men's affairs, in retreat rather than in captivity. They were quaint and sympathetic, those two homely basins, unfurnished and silent, with no aggressive display of cranes, no apparatus of hurry and work on their narrow shores. No railway lines cumbered them. The knots of labourers trooping in clumsily round the corners of cargo sheds to eat their food in peace out of red cotton handkerchiefs had an air of picnicking by the side of a lonely mountain pool. They were restful, and I should say very unprofitable, those basins, where the chief officer of one of the ships involved in the harassing, strenuous, noisy activity of the New South Dock, only a few yards away, could escape in the dinner hour to stroll, unhampered by men and affairs, meditating, if he chose, on the vanity of all things human. At one time they must have been full of good old slow West Indiamen of the square stern type that took their captivity, one imagines, as stolidly as they had faced the buffeting of the waves with their blunt, honest bows, and disgorged sugar, rum, molasses, coffee or logwood sedately with their own winch and tackle. But when I knew them, of exports there was never a sign that one could detect, and all the imports I have ever seen were some rare cargoes of tropical timber, Enormous balks roughed out in iron trunks grown in the woods about the Gulf of Mexico. 
They lay piled up in stacks of mighty boles, and it was hard to believe that all this mass of dead and stripped trees had come out of the flanks of a slender, innocent-looking little bark, with, as likely as not, a homely woman's name, Ellen this or Annie that, upon her fine boughs. But this is generally the case with a discharged cargo. Once spread at large over the quay, it looks the most impossible bulk to have all come there out of that ship alongside. They were quiet, serene nooks in the busy world of docks, these basins, where it has never been my good luck to get a berth after some more or less arduous passage. But one could see at a glance that men and ships were never hustled there. They were so quiet that, remembering them well, one comes to doubt that they ever existed, places of repose for tired ships to dream in, places of meditation rather than work, where wicked ships, the cranky, the lazy, the wet, the bad sea-boats, the wild steerers, the capricious, the pig-headed, the generally ungovernable, would have full leisure to take count and repent of their sins, sorrowful and naked, with their rent garments of sailcloth stripped off them, and with the dust and ashes of the London atmosphere upon their mastheads. For that the worst of ships would repent if she were ever given time, I make no doubt. I have known too many of them, no ship is wholly bad, and now that their bodies that had braved so many tempests have been blown off the face of the sea by a puff of steam, the evil and the good together into the limbo of things that have served their time, there can be no harm in affirming that in these vanished generations of willing servants there never has been one utterly unredeemable soul. In the New South Dock there was certainly no time for remorse, introspection, repentance or any phenomena of inner life either for the captive ships or for their officers. From six in the morning till six at night the hard labour of the prison house, which rewards the valiance of ships that win the harbour, went on steadily, great slings of general cargo swinging over the rail to drop plumb into the hatchways at the sign of the gangway tender's hand. The New South Dock was especially a loading dock for the colonies in those great and last days of smart wool clippers, good to look at and, well, exciting to handle. Some of them were more fair to see than the others. Some were, to put it mildly, somewhat overmastered. All were expected to make good passengers, and of all that line of ships whose rigging made a thick, enormous network against the sky, whose brasses flashed almost as far as the eye of the policeman at the gates could reach, there was hardly one that knew any other port amongst all the parts on the wide earth but London and Sydney, or London and Melbourne, or London and Adelaide, perhaps with Hobart Town added for those of smaller tonnage. One could almost have believed, as her grey-whiskered second mate used to say of the old Duke of S, that they knew the road to the Antipodes better than their own skippers, who, year in, year out, took them from London, the place of captivity, to some Australian port where, twenty-five years ago, though moored well and tight enough to the wooden wharves, they felt themselves no captives but honoured guests. These towns of the Antipodes, not so great then as they are now, took an interest in the shipping, the running links with home, whose numbers confirmed the sense of their growing importance. They made it part and parcel of their daily interests. This was especially the case in Sydney, where from the heart of the fair city down the vista of important streets could be seen the wall clippers lying at the circular quay, no walled prison-house of a dock that, but the integral part of one of the finest, most beautiful, vast and safe bays the sun ever shone upon. 
Now great steam liners lie at these berths, always reserved for the sea aristocracy, grand and imposing enough ships, but here today and gone next week. Whereas the general cargo, emigrant and passenger clippers of my time, rigged with heavy spars and built on fine lines, used to remain for months together waiting for their load of wool. Their names attained the dignity of household words. On Sundays and holidays the citizens trooped down on visiting bent, and the lonely officer on duty solaced himself by playing the Cicerone, especially to the citizenesses with engaging manners and a well-developed sense of the fun that may be got out of the inspection of a ship's cabins and staterooms. The tinkle of more or less untuned cottage pianos floated out of open stern ports till the gas lamps began to twinkle in the streets, and the ship's night watchman, coming sleepily on duty after his unsatisfactory day slumbers, hauled down the flags and fastened a lighted lantern at the break of the gangway. The night closed rapidly upon the silent ships with their crews on shore. Up a short, steep ascent to the King's Head pub, patronised by the cooks and stewards of the fleet, the voice of a man crying, Hot Savaloys! at the end of George Street, where the cheap eating houses, sixpence a meal, were kept by Chinamen. Sun Kumon's was not bad, his herd at regular intervals. I've listened for hours to this most pertinacious peddler, I wonder whether he is dead or has made a fortune, while sitting on the rail of the old Duke of S. She's dead, poor thing, a violent death on the coast of New Zealand. Fascinated by the monotony, the regularity, the abruptness of the recurring cry, and so exasperated at the absurd spell that I wish the fellow would choke himself to death with a mouthful of his own infamous wares. A stupid job, and fit only for an old man, my comrade used to tell me, to be the night watchman of a captive, though honoured, ship. And generally the oldest of the able seamen in a ship's crew does get it. But sometimes neither the oldest nor any other fairly steady seaman is forthcoming. Ship's crews had the trick of melting away swiftly in those days. So, probably on account of my youth, innocence and pensive habits, which made me sometimes dilatory in my work about the rigging, I was suddenly nominated in our chief mate Mr. B.'s most sardonic tones to that enviable situation. I do not regret the experience. The night humours of the town descended from the streets to the waterside in the still watches of the night. Larrikins, rushing down in bands to settle some quarrel by a stand-up fight away from the police, in an indistinct ring half-hidden by piles of cargo, with the sounds of blows, a groan now and then, the stamping of feet and the cry of time, rising suddenly above the sinister and excited murmurs. Night prowlers pursued or pursuing, with a stifled shriek followed by a profound silence, or slinking stealthily along like ghosts, and addressing me from the quay below in mysterious tones with incomprehensible propositions. The cabmen, too, who twice a week, on the night when the ASN Company's passenger boat was due to arrive, used to range a battalion of blazing lamps opposite the ship, were very amusing in their way. They got down from their perches and told each other impolite stories in racy language, every word of which reached me distinctly over the bulwarks as I sat smoking on the main hatch. On one occasion I had an hour or so of a most intellectual conversation with a person whom I could not see distinctly, a gentleman from England, he said, with a cultivated voice, I on deck and he on the quay sitting on a case of a piano, 
landed out of our hold that very afternoon and smoking a cigar which smelt very good. We touched in our discourse upon science, politics, natural history and operatic singers. Then, after remarking abruptly, You seem to be rather intelligent, my man, he informed me pointedly that his name was Mr. Senior and walked off to his hotel, I suppose. Shadows, shadows. I think I saw a white whisker as he turned under the lamppost. It is a shock to think that in the natural course of nature he must be dead by now. There was nothing to object to in his intelligence but a little dogmatism, maybe. And his name was Senior, Mr. Senior. The position had its drawbacks, however. One wintry, blustering, dark night in July, as I stood sleepily out of the rain under the break of the poop, something resembling an ostrich dashed up the gangway. I say ostrich because the creature, though it ran on two legs, appeared to help its progress by working a pair of short wings. It was a man, however, and his coat, ripped up the back and flapping in two halves above his shoulders, gave him that weird and foul-like appearance. At least I suppose it was his coat, for it was impossible to make him out distinctly. How he managed to come so straight upon me, at speed and without a stumble over a strange deck, I cannot imagine. He must have been able to see in the dark better than any cat. He overwhelmed me with panting entreaties to let him take shelter till morning in our forecastle. Following my strict orders, I refused his request, mildly at first, in a sterner tone as he insisted with growing impatience. For God's sake, let me, matey. Some of them are after me, and I've got hold of a ticker here. You clear out of this, I said. Don't be hard on a chap, old mate, he whined pitifully. Now then, get ashore at once, do you hear? Silence. He appeared to cringe, mute, as if words had failed him through grief. Then, bang, came a concussion and a great flash of light in which he vanished, leaving me prone on my back with the most abominable black eye that anybody ever got in the faithful discharge of duty. Shadows, shadows. I hope he escaped the enemies he was fleeing from to live and flourish to this day. But his fist was uncommonly hard and his aim miraculously true in the dark. There were other experiences, less painful and more funny for the most part, with one amongst them of a dramatic complexion. But the greatest experience of them all was Mr. B, our chief mate himself. He used to go ashore every night to foregather in some hotel's parlour with his crony, the mate of the bark Cicero, lying on the other side of the circular quay. Late at night I would hear from afar their stumbling footsteps and their voices raised in endless argument. The mate of the Cicero was seeing his friend on board. They would continue their senseless and muddled discourse in tones of profound friendship for half an hour or so at the shore end of our gangway, and then I would hear Mr. B insisting that he must see the other on board his ship. And away they would go, their voices still conversing with excessive amity, being heard moving all round the harbour. It happened more than once that they would thus perambulate three or four times the distance, each seeing the other on board his ship out of pure and disinterested affection. Then, through sheer weariness, or perhaps in a moment of forgetfulness, they would manage to part from each other somehow, and by and by the planks of our long gangway would bend and creak under the weight of Mr. B coming on board for good at last. On the rail his burly form would stop and stand swaying. A watchman! Sir, a pause. 
He waited for a moment of steadiness before negotiating the three steps of the inside ladder from rail to deck, and the watchman, taught by experience, would forbear offering help which would be received as an insult at that particular stage of the mate's return. But many times I trembled for his neck. He was a heavy man. Then, with a rush and a thump, it would be done. He never had to pick himself up, but it took him a minute or so to pull himself together after the descent. Watchman! Sir? Captain aboard? Yes, sir. Pause. Dog aboard? Yes, sir. Pause. Our dog was a gaunt and unpleasant beast, more like a wolf in poor health than a dog, and I never noticed Mr. B at any other time show the slightest interest in the doings of the animal, but that question never failed. Let's have your arm to steady me along. I was always prepared for that request. He leaned on me heavily till near enough the cabin door to catch hold of the handle. Then he would let go my arm at once. That'll do. I can manage now. And he could manage. He could manage to find his way into his berth, light his lamp, get into his bed. Ay, and get out of it when I called him at half-past five, the first man on deck, lifting the cup of morning coffee to his lips with a steady hand, ready for duty as though he had virtuously slept ten solid hours. A better chief officer than many a man who had never tasted grog in his life. He could manage all that, but could never manage to get on in life. Only once he failed to seize the cabin door handle at the first grab. He waited a little, tried again, and again failed. His weight was growing heavier on my arm. He sighed slowly. Damn that handle! Without letting go his hold of me, he turned about, his face lit up bright as day by the full moon. I wish she was out at sea, he growled savagely. Yes, sir. I felt the need to say something because he hung on to me as if lost, breathing heavily. Ports are no good. Ships rot, men go to the devil. I kept still, and after a while he repeated with a sigh. I wish you were at sea out of this. So do I, sir, I ventured. Holding my shoulder, he turned upon me. You, what's that to you where she is? You don't drink. And even on that night, he managed it at last. He got hold of the handle. But he did not manage to light his lamp. I don't think he even tried. Though in the morning, as usual, he was the first on deck, bull-necked, curly-headed, watching the hands turn to with his sardonic expression and unflinching gaze. I met him ten years afterwards, casually, unexpectedly, in the street, on coming out of my consignee office. I was not likely to have forgotten him with his I can manage now. He recognised me at once, remembered my name and in what ship I had served under his orders. He looked me over from head to foot. "'What are you doing here?' he asked. "'I'm commanding a little bark,' I said, "'loading here for Mauritius.' Then, thoughtlessly, I added, "'And what are you doing, Mr. B?' "'I,' he said, looking at me unflinchingly with his old sardonic grin, "'I am looking for something to do.' I felt I would rather have bitten out my tongue. His jet-black curly hair had turned iron-grey. He was scrupulously neat as ever, but frightfully threadbare. His shiny boots were worn down at heel. But he forgave me, and we drove off together in a hansom to dine on board my ship. 
He went over her conscientiously, praised her heartily, congratulated me on my command with absolute sincerity. At dinner, as I offered him wine and beer, he shook his head, and as I sat looking at him interrogatively, muttered in an undertone, I've given up all that. After dinner, we came again on deck. It seemed as though he could not tear himself away from the ship. We were fitting some new lower rigging, and he hung about, approving, suggesting, giving me advice in his old manner. Twice he addressed me as my boy, and corrected himself quickly to captain. My mate was about to leave me, to get married, but I concealed the fact from Mr. B. I was afraid he would ask me to give him the berth in some ghastly jocular hint that I could not refuse to take. I was afraid. It would have been impossible. I could not have given orders to Mr. B, and I am sure he would not have taken them from me very long. He could not have managed that, though he had managed to break himself from drink too late. He said goodbye at last. As I watched his burly, bull-necked figure walk away up the street, I wondered with a sinking heart whether he had much more than the price of a night's lodging in his pocket. And I understood that if that very minute I were to call out after him, he would not even turn his head. He too is no more than a shadow, but I seem to hear his words spoken on the moonlit deck of the old duke. Ports are no good. Ships rot. Men go to the devil. End of chapter 11